Well, good morning. It is great to be here this morning with you all on this beautiful Lord's Day. And I'd invite you to go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be spending some time in an amazing passage, um, mostly known for its eschatology. Obviously, Jesus here is talking about the end times, signs of the end and what's happening, what's coming. And I think that it's overlooked for the number of parables that are in this discourse. There are at least five parables in here, and today we're going to cover one. That's all I want to do because I want to use this morning also to set up for the next time I have an opportunity to preach so that we can cover a couple of the other parables in this discourse, this last discourse in Matthew's Gospel. We live right now in perilous times. There is no doubt that our country is under a transformation. We have seen all around us the indications of a cultural revolution going on that is becoming more and more and more antagonistic to biblical Christianity. And if you don't know, right now, as of this last week in the California Senate, they're considering a bill, number SB 1146, 1146, that would essentially end all Christian higher education in the state of California. They uh, believe that that type of training, that type of biblical worldview training, should only occur for those that are being trained to go into the pastorate, to go into the churches. They don't want the Christian worldview influencing a liberal arts college education. And they're making it very, very difficult for California colleges that are Christian-based, that are biblically-based, to continue. This is happening right now. Where California goes, so goes the nation. This country is definitely under attack. And yet, we shouldn't be surprised that things like this are happening right now in this country. We were warned that these things would happen. We have God's word. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself promised that the world would come to hate us if we identify with him and his church. Paul reminded Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is not news to us. This is going to happen. And we're living it right now. So what are we supposed to do with all of these events that are unfolding around us here in California, here nationally, with the current political climate, and even in the world, especially in Israel and the Middle East. What do we do with all of this information? Thankfully, Jesus has some excellent and timely words for us in Matthew 24, in his parable of the fig tree. Today, I just want to look at four aspects of being ready for the imminent return of Christ. Four aspects of being ready for the imminent return of Christ. I'm going to give you the four aspects, and then we're going to break, th- break them down. We're going to walk through them. The four aspects are being able to recognize the signs of his return, to know the signs of his return, to heed the signs of his return, and then lastly, to live in light of the signs of his return. So recognize the signs, know the signs, heed the signs, And live in light of the signs. Let's look at this parable. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 32. 
Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be gathering at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. This parable sits within an amazing discourse that is at the center of much debate within the theological realm. There are so many views on this discourse, that it would be overwhelming to try and even break it down in this sermon this morning. That's not what I intend to do today. I don't want to give you a boring academic theological lecture on eschatology. That's not what we're here for. What I want to do, though, is to be very pastoral as we walk through this parable and this passage in, in the midst of a difficult section in Matthew's Gospel. So let's look at these four aspects so that we are ready for Christ's return. The first one, number one, recognize the signs. Recognize the signs. Verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. This is a parable from nature. Short, sweet, to the point, almost too simple. And that's the beautiful thing of parables. Sometimes there is always something that is so easy to understand, and yet there is a much deeper meaning that Christ is trying to get through. And that is absolutely the case with this parable. It's so short, in fact, that some commentators overlook or even ignore this parable. Some of your study Bibles may not even have a study note on this verse at all. Because of the greater context in Matthew 24 and the fact that this section is so difficult to understand, they don't want to have to spend time dealing with a parable like this. But we cannot ignore the context in Matthew 24, and we can't ignore this parable. That's what we're doing this summer is parables. We've heard the parable of the soils. We've seen the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. We've heard about the parable of the treasure and the pearl. We need to understand this parable, the way that Jesus' hearers would understand it, and then answer the question, how does this relate to me today? So let's look at this again. Matthew 24, 32. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is, is near. That's the parable. Now, Why does Jesus start the parable in this way, with the word now? He's pointing back to everything that he has taught, beginning back in chapter 24, verse 1. This is the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, or the Olivet Discourse. Matthew's Gospel has five different discourses of Jesus arranged very, uh, very 
appropriately and very purposefully so that he understands or so that we can understand all of Jesus' teaching. The first discourse, Sermon on the Mount. This is a discourse on what does it take? What are the requirements to get into the kingdom of God? Matthew 5 through 7. It's all about kingdom living, kingdom citizenship. What does it look like to be a, a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? On this discourse, this fifth and final discourse, he is preparing them for kingdom entrance in the future because the Jewish people have rejected him as Messiah and the kingdom was withheld at that time. Remember, this is during the Passion Week. This is Tuesday of Passion Week. He's in the temple, he's teaching, and the crowds are amazed at his teaching. They leave the temple complex, chapter 24, verse 1. He came out of the temple, was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, no, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Obviously, we know from history that Jesus here is talking about the destruction of the temple. That occurred in A.D. 70. We know that the Jews were rebellious. They rebelled against Rome. They kicked Rome out of Jerusalem. And as a result, Nero got so upset that he sent Vespasian to go and surround Jerusalem to essentially besiege it and conquer it all over again. Nero was so distraught, though, and so unstable that he ended up committing suicide, so Vespasian got recalled to Rome and sent his son Titus to finish the job. Titus ultimately did that in AD 70, and ultimately when they went into the temple, they saw that the temple was amazingly beautiful. The story goes, Josephus tells us, that one of the Roman soldiers, they were told not to destroy the temple. They were specifically told, leave it intact. And yet, one of the Roman soldiers, they were so in awe of it, knocked over the candelabra. The eight candles that were in there fell, full of olive oil, splashed up against the tapestries, against the wall, and it went up in flames. And that just continued to burn and burn so hot that it melted all of the gold in the temple and down into the stonework and into the floor. Well, if you know anything about Roman soldiers, they get paid based on conquest. That was their money. They knew that they had to get to that gold. Once the fire was out, the gold cooled, it hardened again, and they literally tore the temple apart stone by stone to get at the gold so that they could literally be paid. The temple was destroyed. And the, they, they were looking at this prediction in Matthew 24, and they were sitting on the Mount of Olives. They came out of the temple, they'd go to the Mount of Olives, they'd sit to be alone at night during this Passion Week. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? When will this event happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're essentially asking three questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed? When are you coming back? And when is the end of the age? He doesn't really answer the question of when the temple is going to be destroyed. But he gave them that parable instead. In Mark 13, Mark tells us that it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew who came to ask for him. And at the end of Luke 21, it tells us that the Mount of Olives was kind of Jesus' 
safe place during this time of his life. He needed to get away from the crowds, get away from the temple, get away from people. And so he would go there just to be alone with his father. Remember, Wednesday is a silent day. And then Thursday we read in John 14 to 17 about the upper room discourse to the 11 the night before he was crucified. But why does he give this this parabolic answer to their question in verse 32? Why the fig tree? What's so special about the fig tree? This was very purposeful. This word picture was perfect for this type of society. It was a very agrarian society, and fig trees were all over Palestine at this time. They were planted in the corners of the fields. They were planted next to pools of water so that when they were in full bloom and and in leaf, they would provide shade over the pool of water to keep it cool. They were planted along the road so that travelers could pluck its fruit while walking around Jerusalem or even in Palestine. And they they would be in fruit for about nine months of the year. So there was always a source of food almost. And there were at least three realities that we should recognize about the fig tree in this parable and why Jesus chose the fig tree as his analogy. Number one, it was significant. And that that significance was not lost on the disciples because it was used at times as a representation of national Israel. That's not how it's used here, but it was an attention grabber. It would grab the disciples' attention, especially in light of, of what Mark records for us in his gospel back in Mark 11, when they were walking to Jerusalem and Jesus went to a fig tree to see if there was any fruit on it, there was no fruit on it, and he cursed it. They walked back, then they walked back into Jerusalem the next day, and they recognized that fig tree that Jesus cursed had withered. Jesus used that as an analogy, as a judgment on national Israel. That analogy then with this parable is not lost on these disciples. They would understand that there is something significant about this parable that we need to remember because I remember seeing that withered fig tree yesterday. I remember that. Symbolically, it was often associated with national blessing. So significance, it could represent national Israel. Symbolically, it's often associated with national blessing. Joel 2 Verse 22 says this, Do not fear. Do not fear beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. This is a time in Joel's uh, prophetic writings that he's talking about Israel being blessed again by God. And oftentimes, thirdly, it signaled prosperity. If you had a fig tree in your yard, you were doing all right. Micah 4.4, each of them, each of these people in Israel, will sit under his own vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. There's a very significant aspect of prosperity. So these disciples, as they're hearing this analogy, as they're hearing this parable, are drawn in because they realize This could be what we are waiting for, that he's going to tell us when the kingdom is coming. The budding of the fig tree, as he's talking about here, he says when the branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, the budding of the fig tree would be a clear signal of what's coming. 
The fig tree was used as a predictor of seasonal change in that part of the world. And when any person who lived during that time knew what to look for in the fig tree during the transition from season to season. You know that summer is near. The Greek word here for know, it's a great word. It's the word gnosko. I love that word. It's literally to know by experience. The form here is a continuous knowing. This is an ongoing knowledge by experience that you see this all the time. You know by experience ongoing that there is a sense that this is a very natural way to understand the seasons. So if this is so natural for you to understand the seasons, we need to now know the signs. We need to know the signs. And we see that in verse 33. This is where the warning comes in. Jesus transitions and he says, So, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. When you see. Notice what he says there. When you see. Not if. When. This is a prediction of reality. This is a prediction that this is going to happen. And it will happen soon. Peter, writing about 30 to 40 years, 30 years roughly after this event, I think was recalling some of these things when he wrote his letter. First Peter 3, he says, I'm sorry. Um, I am can't believe I I lost my I think it is Second Peter three because I just put my wrong reference in here. Okay, here we go. Sorry, First Peter four. First Peter four, starting in verse three. He says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they were surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. They malign you. Don't go there. Verses, go down to verse 8 and 9. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. <clears throat> Sorry, but go back to verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving another, serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then back down to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Verse 17, For it is the time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And verse 5, he just continues on that whole 
theme of when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. During this time of writing also, Peter was helping to encourage them that there are going to be people that are going to tell you, wait a second, we thought that he said he was coming back. Where is he? And Peter tells his readers, to the Lord, a year is like a thousand days. A thousand days is like a year. Time has no meaning for, for God. There is nothing wrong with the reality that, you know what, we're going to have to wait. But he is coming, and he is coming soon. Next, verse 33 again. When you see all these things. What are all these things? What is he talking about there? And this is an important phrase because Jesus repeats it in the next verse. What's he referring to here? What things? Well, we have to jump back again in chapter 24. Going back all the way to verse 3. Or verse 4. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, See to, see to it that no one misleads you. And then he goes on to list all things that are already happening. Verse 4, you're going to see false teachers. False teachers are coming. Verse 5, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7, there's going to be famines and earthquakes. Verses 9 to 14, there's going to be a physical persecution of the church. That happened Shortly after Jesus died, those things happened all the way through the first century into the early church. Those things have continued to happen. They are already happening, and they are ongoing. These are signs of the imminent return of Christ, and yet these are just birth pains. These are just the birth pains. Because there are things that have not yet happened that he goes on to describe beginning in verse 15. Verse 15, he says, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation has not yet happened. There will be judgments, verses 17 to 22. There will be false prophets, not just false teachers, but false prophets, verses 23 to 26. You're going to see signs in the heavens like you have never seen before, verses 27 to 29. And then, ultimately, you will see Christ's final return in verse 30 and the gathering of the elect in verse 31 from all the corners of the world. Jesus is answering the question in verse, 23, in verse 3. He says, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now he's answering their question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus is telling them, just like the fig tree tells you summer is coming when it buds, so will all of these things tell you that I am at the threshold of the door and I am about to walk through. In the NAS, the New American Standard Version, translation, he says, recognize in verse 33. In the ESV, he says, you know. I love the ESV, but I think they do us a disservice here. Not because they got it wrong, because they didn't. They translated that Greek word exactly the way they should have translated it. 
Because that's the form of the word. It's identical in every way, shape, and form to the word in verse 32. Everything is identical. But in Greek, as in Hebrew, as in all language, words have meaning, and they only have meaning in context. And when Jesus is going here to say recognize, basically what he does is he changes the force of what he is saying. He's not just saying, now just continue to recognize, continue to see an ongoing understanding of what's going on and know that there are things that are happening. That's not what he's saying. He changes the force of what he says to a command. And in the Greek, there are times when a word can have two different forms. I'm sorry, one form with two different meanings. One is an ongoing understanding. The other one, he's commanding something. And that's what it is here. It's like in English. If I were to say, you know this, compared to know this. Same thing. Same word, same form, different force. What he is saying to them here is understand and know, commanding them to realize that there is something very real that is about to happen that you need to be prepared for. We're going to see this more clearly with some of the other parables later on in this chapter and on into chapter 25. But we need to recognize these signs and we need to know these signs. Because thirdly, we need to heed the signs. We need to heed the signs. Verses 34 and 35 give us the implications that are seen in these signs. Look at what he says here. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He starts this this section of implication, truly I say to you, this is the reality of the situation that we're now in. He's saying to his disciples, this is the reality. Now listen up. There are two implications that you need to understand. Two things are going to remain to see Jesus' return. Two things. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation will remain, and my words will remain. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what does Jesus mean by this generation? And this is where it kind of gets a little technical. I'm really going to make it very understandable because pages and pages and pages of commentaries are written on this phrase, this generation. But there's at least four views to this generation. What does it mean? The first view is that it was the present generation hearing Jesus' words right then and there before he was crucified. It is the generation of the gospel, of the gospel writers. It is the generation of the disciples, of the apostles. That it was the generation that lived for the 30 or 40 years after Jesus spoke these words and then died off. Unfortunately, that really doesn't work based on all these things. The phrase, all these things. Because all these things haven't happened yet. Some have, but not yet. There are some that have already happened, but some not yet. So this generation cannot be that generation that heard him say those words. The second view is the race or people in general, meaning the Jews as a race or a nation. That's possible. It has some merit to it. It's, it's a decent argument. 
The third argument is that this type of generation, it's the generation of wicked humanity that rejected the Messiah. That has some merit also based on the context later on we're going to see in the times of Noah, talking about a very wicked generation of people. There's, there's some merit there. But I think the best understanding of this phrase, this generation, is understanding it to be the generation that sees the signs of the end and who will ultimately see the end itself. That generation needs to understand and know and recognize the signs. Because that generation is going to be the last generation that has an opportunity to turn and accept and trust Christ as Lord and Savior. Once that generation sees the return of Christ, that's it. We're done. There is no second chance. And we are living in the last generation. We are living in the end times. We are living to see the imminent return of Christ. We are seeing these things happen. Am I giving you a day and a date and a time when he's going to come back? No. And I never will. But we need to realize that we are seeing these things happen. We need to recognize these things. We need to understand them and we need to heed them. I don't think that we should limit Jesus' words to those people in the first century. Limiting Jesus' words to that group of people, which many theologians want to do, many theologians that I highly respect want to do that, would mean that events described in verses 29 to 31 have already occurred, and they have not. They have not. There is a sense in which, for sure, they have been foreshadowed, but they have not yet occurred. It's interesting to note, historically, leading up to the destruction of the temple, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, that there were a group of religious people known as the Pharisees. You guys have heard about them a lot because most of Jesus' parables were aimed at them. These Pharisees looked at the signs of the times and looked at what was happening with Rome and realized, we need to get out of Dodge. And so they, Gamaliel, one of their leaders, took the, the rabbinical school or the rabbinical um, court, the Sanhedrin, and moved it out of Jerusalem to another area, Jabna, and then ultimately moved it to Tiberias in Galilee. Then another man was able to negotiate a truce, a truce with Rome and a peace with Rome so that they could literally get all of the scholars out of Jerusalem into areas outside of the city so that they would be safe. Even the Pharisees could recognize that something bad was about to happen. They weren't even here when they heard Jesus' words. But they recognized something bad is about to happen. We need to get out, and we need to get out now. And they did, and they survived. None of the other sects survived. And what we have today in Judaism in the 21st century is the ancestor, or is the uh, progeny, the descendant of Pharisaical Judaism of Jesus' day. Because they saw the signs. They recognized something was happening and saved themselves. We need to recognize that things are happening so that we turn to Jesus for salvation. We cannot save ourselves. The generation that Jesus was talking about here is the generation that sees the signs of the end and who will see the end itself. John MacArthur puts it this way. 
we are left then with the simple and most reasonable interpretation that the leaves of the fig tree represent the birth pains and the other signs of his coming Jesus has mentioned in this chapter and that this generation refers to the people living at the end time who will view these signs. In partial answer to the disciples' question concerning the when of his coming, Jesus said that it will occur very soon after those signs are witnessed, before the generation who sees them has time to pass away. He is speaking uh, to the same prophetically distant you he has been addressing throughout the chapter in verses 4, 6, 9, 15, 25. Jesus was speaking as some of the Old Testament prophets often spoke, as if they were standing directly before future generations. You can see this in Isaiah 33, Isaiah 66, and even Zechariah 9. The idea is that just as the budding of fig leaves means it is not long until summer, so the generation alive when the signs occur will not have long to wait for Christ's appearance. Those who witness the birth pains will witness the birth. Jesus also reminds us that his word remains. So not only will this generation remain until then, but his word remains. Truth endures. Whatever was written, whatever was written in this book was written for our instruction. And we must endure to the end to study hard, to understand it, to live it out, to obey it, to love it like the psalmist says in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. He explicitly states that there will be an unprecedented alteration in the universe. Heaven and earth will pass away. And yet there is also an unchanging authority. His word remains. The universe will fail, but what Jesus has said will not fail to come to complete fulfillment. You have his word on it. You have his promise, and he will fulfill his promises. Luke 16, 17 says, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. His words will, ne will never fail. John 10, 35 tells us that it is not possible for the word of God to be broken. So, as we recognize the signs, we'll be able to know the signs so that we heed the signs, which leads us to being able to live in light of the signs. This is the conclusion of Jesus' teaching. This is the conclusion of the parable, verses 36 to 42. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So what does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? There are at least four applications that Jesus makes for us at the end of this parable. He applies this to us in four ways. Number one, first, we have a sovereign God who is in total control of all things, past, present, and future. We don't need to worry about the po political climate of the USA. We don't need to worry about this, the cultural revolution that is coming. Yes, it, it bugs us. Yes, we're bothered by it. Yes, we, 
we can't stop it. It's been predicted. What we need to do is live gospel-saturated lives. We need to live cross-centered lives. We need to live Christ-centered lives, focusing on the cross. People make a lot out of this verse where it says, the son doesn't even know the time of his return. As if to say that, see, Jesus really wasn't God in human flesh. And that's not the point of what's being said here. That's not the point. Jesus voluntarily set aside the incommunicable attributes for a time in order to be made exactly as we are so that he could be our perfect propitiation, our perfect atoning sacrifice and high priest. Ultimately, Jesus wants you to know that that day will come. And it will come at a time when no one knows and no one recognizes. Peter, again, in his, in his letter, in 1 Peter, he writes this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ may be sprinkled with his, and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoiced, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Beloved, we have a loving God. We have a merciful high priest. We have a Savior who loves us, who died for us. And his death on that cross secured a real salvation for real people. That atoning sacrifice was perfect. When Christ died, he died for all without distinction. It doesn't matter who you are. You can come to Christ. But when Christ died, he did not die for all without exception. It is not a universal salvation. You must come. You must confess. You must repent. You must trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And in that, you will greatly rejoice in the last day. When you see him coming, you see the signs, you recognize the signs, you understand the signs, you heed the signs, you live in light of the signs, you will greatly rejoice. 
we chafe against the sovereignty of God, sovereignty of God and salvation. We don't like this idea of perfect foreknowledge and election. We don't. It's hard. But Peter also tells us, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Jesus saves. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Second, second application is that we are living in the end times now. We are living in the end times. Just as Peter and James and John were living in the end times in the first century, we are living in the end times right now. We need to live in light of the realization that there are things that are going on around us in society that have been going on since the beginning of time, just like in the days of Noah. Verses 37, 38, and 39. Nothing has changed since the days of Noah. Life goes on. And if you remember back to Genesis 6 in the days of Noah, Moses writes that every intention of the heart of man was only evil continually. And God couldn't deal with that anymore. And he judged the world at that time, and he destroyed it. He saved eight people. Eight out of a billion? That's it. Eight. We are living in a world where the, every intent of the thought of, heart, of the heart of man is only evil continually. Evil is being seen and promoted as what is good and right and just. Biblical truth, biblical Christianity is vilified as what is wicked and evil and bigoted. It's being turned upside down. It's being turned on its head. And beloved, we are seeing that right now in society. Sin and immorality will only continue to increase around us. As the sexual revolutionaries continue to provide fuel for the current cultural revolution we're currently seeing, we as a society are careening toward judgment to come. Are you ready for that judgment? Are you ready? Third application. There will be a judgment and a separation. You can see that in verses 40 and 41. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. There is a separation that will occur here. Matthew 25, at the very end of this discourse, where he talks about the final judgment, verse 31 to 33, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. What's significant about the right side versus the left side? The right side is the side of honor. The left side is the sign of dishonor. God is going to judge us, and he is going to separate the believers and the unbelievers. Judgment is coming. And again, people want to dive into the minutiae. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Is the one taken rapture? I don't think so. Not here. That's not what this is talking about. There's judgment here. Is the one taken, taken away in judgment? Possibly. The bottom line is that there is a separation. 
And that separation is very real. And in context of Matthew 24 and 25, it is a, a separation of judgment. Are you ready? Lastly, verse 42 to 44. Therefore, because of what I just said here in this parable, verses 32 to 41, Jesus is saying, be on the alert. Get ready. Stay ready. Fourthly, get ready. Stay ready. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the night time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Get ready and stay ready. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? We must recognize the signs so that we'll be able to know the signs in order to heed the signs, which leads us to being able to live in light of the signs. Simon Kistemacher has a very helpful summary of this entire section. He writes this. Until the day of Christ's return, when the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness, no generation is exempt from calamities. But Christians ought not to be dismayed or disheartened. They ought to observe the sign of the times very carefully, much the same as they look at the budding fig tree. And know that the events occurring around them are ushering in a new age. The parable, therefore, urges believers to persevere in watchfulness. The adversities they encounter ought not to diminish their endurance and undermine their confidence. Rather, adversities ought to confirm expectation of the approaching glorious finale of which these adversities are harbingers. And even though believers throughout the ages have suffered afflictions and have coped with disaster... The Christian today, more than ever before, is encouraged by the timely words of Paul from Romans 13. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Have you resolved in your heart to live in a way that you anticipate the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards did. And of his 70 resolutions, 13 of them were about how to live in the light of Christ's coming. Resolution 19, he said, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. And resolution number 50, resolved I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Beloved, will you resolve yourself to live in light of eternity and be ready when Christ comes? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, get to know him. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ who was the incarnate Son of God, who suffered and died, was buried, rose again, and ascended for the sake of your chosen people. Lord Jesus, your departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Your word, promises, sacraments show your death until you come again. And that day is no horror to me, as it will be for some who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. 
For your death has redeemed me. Your spirit fills me. Your love makes me alive and your word governs me. I have trusted you. And you have not betrayed our trust. You've not betrayed my trust. All who have trusted you know that you have not betrayed them. Lord, we wait for you. And we know that our wait is not in vain. You will come to raise us from the dust and renew us and reunite us with our soul by a wonderful work of infinite power and love, greater than that which bounds the ocean's waters, which keeps the stars in their courses and gives life to all creatures. This incorruptible body will put on incorruption. This mortal body, immortality. This natural body, a spiritual body. This dishonored body, a glorious body. And this this weak body, a body of power. Lord, I triumph now in your promises just as I shall do in their performance. For the head cannot live as the members are dead. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, and dominion. Every event and circumstance of our lives will be dealt with. Our sins, the sins of our youth, our secret sins, the sins of abusing you, disobeying your word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience. All of these will be judged. And thankfully, because of our trust in you, after judgment, peace and rest, life and service, enjoyment and enjoyment for your elect. Oh, Lord God, please keep us in this faith, ever looking for Christ's return. We pray these things in his name. Amen.